Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, the Associate Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we will be previewing the new issue of the magazine with Judy Bloom on the cover. Features a special section on literary agents, and we'll be hearing from four agents about what they're looking for. We'll also be talking with Jesse Browner, the author of How Did I Get Here? Making Peace with the Road Not Taken. And we'll also be taking a look at our next Poets and Writers Live event, which will be happening in Chicago on June 20th. And so much more. So stay tuned. So the new issue is out. The new issue is out, and it's got Judy Bloom on the cover. Judy Bloom, who is most widely known, perhaps, for her young adult novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. She has a new novel out uh, for adults. It's called In the Unlikely Event, and that is published by Knopf this month. That's right. And our contributing editor, Kevin Nance, uh, flew to Key West uh, from his home in Chicago and spent the afternoon with Judy. So you can check out that interview in the issue. This issue also marks the 15th annual First Fiction Roundup. So each year we select a handful of debut fiction authors um, whose books, uh, they may be novels or short story collections, are coming out this year around the time that this issue is released. Right. And a few years ago, uh, we decided to invite established authors to interview those debut authors for us. So this year we have Tyari Jones, Elana Bila, Elliot Holt, Tiffany Yannick and Darren Strauss, uh, and they interviewed the the debut authors. So Angela Flournoy, uh, the author of The Turner House, Chigotsi Obiyama, author of The Fisherman, Julia Pierpont, author of Among the Ten Thousand Things, Naomi Jackson, author of The Star Side of Bird Hill, and Rebecca Dinerstein, the author of The Sunlit Night. Um, it's also the agents issue. That's right. And uh, the centerpiece of that section is another installment in our long-running series, Agents and Editors. So Michael Zurban is an executive editor at Little Brown, and he's been doing these interviews for us. For this issue, he invited four agents um, to talk with him. Claudia Ballard, an agent at William Morris Endeavor. Seth Fishman of Sterling Lord Literistic. Melissa Flashman of Trident Media, and Aliyah Hannah Habib from McCormick Literary. And they spent several hours uh, at Little Brown um, talking about a whole range of topics. Um, they touched on uh, what they're looking for in a query letter, some common mistakes that writers should avoid, uh, and other advice for writers looking for an agent. So presumably when you guys started, you weren't representing, the bulk of your list wasn't representing people who had done three books before, but beginning writers. So what about the craft type stuff that beginning writers could improve? I feel like the effort and whatever form it takes to try and grab someone at the beginning of whatever your query is, um, instead of focusing on the actual query, uh, uh, is the problem. And that comes ac across in prologues a lot. I would be willing to say... But Seth, that the didn't you say that you read the first and the third paragraph 
and not the synopsis in the middle. I'm a total first and third paragraph. Yeah. And I feel the same no, way. No, but it's about the writing. I mean, I've reject. I one of my great one of my clients who I love, um, Django Wexler, gave me a query letter. I couldn't parse through. I rejected him. It came back around to me, and I read the first page. And I was like, oh, I know I'm gonna love him. I didn't even. I, didn't wow. even, I re- rejected on the query letter. Now yeah. I learned a lesson myself there. Right. Right. But like, you can screw things up, and I and I mean when I say what I said, I meant both query letter and the the, the manuscript. I mean, I think a query letter can play a lot of fuzzy games too. Crazy fonts blurbs in the middle of it yeah don't do that but so could yeah, i mean and yeah. the submissions can also start on page yeah. 50 and be like this is my strong chapter mm-hmm. so we're going to start with that which is an absolute no-no but i'm not just talking about do's and don'ts i also personally this is a personal thing but with prologues i think often the prologue is trying to take something exciting from the book and move it to the front of the book and i know there are exceptions i admit to the exceptions i have clients who have exceptions but in, if you're asking something specific that i think is a uh, a oh, trip a up. Mistake. I think. Yeah. I think that that is. If there's always a prologue, I always make my clients think about whether it needs to be there and what it's about, and you know, and, and where where the beginning of your story is, because it is about those first beginning pages. It really is. Yeah. A lot of it is. Period. <laughs> yeah, and I think we also like. I think Claudia said this earlier. Like, it is. It really is a subjective industry. We all have this sort of. Like especially with fiction, especially with literary fiction, like yeah. the sort of thing we gravitate towards. Yeah. I know in the a panel I was on the other day, I was like, I love elegiac fiction, and by elegiac, <laughs> I mean if your intro sounds like the beginning of The Great Gatsby or uh, The Secret History, I'm a sucker for it. I will. It's like a, yeah. I call it book voice. I love it. I will like read. <laughs> I, I read the intro to The Great Gatsby along with one of my author's intros this weekend out loud just for fun. I'm not a poet. Um, I don't know much about poetry besides English 201, but I there's a certain type. It's like a perfect pop song that I like. It's like wistful elegiac. It's like a voice that I love. Um, there are other oh, agents. Oh, it's so smart. Actually, like, I ran into Rob Spillman recently, and he was telling me that he's teaching this. Sorry. And he was telling me that he's teaching this class at his MFA program this semester that's all first paragraphs. That is oh. So brilliant. all you can bring in right. is the first paragraph, oh. and he reads you that he, like, exemplary first paragraphs that he thinks, like, show you how, you, how one should work. And all the students bring in, and that's all they workshop the whole semester. And I think that is so brilliant, because that's, that is yeah. the thing that's going to hook you in, that you form that like snap judgment on whatever you're reading even if I'm picking up a book that's been published and widely acclaimed absolutely. And, absolutely. you know if I don't feel connected to that first paragraph it's going to uh, it's harder for me to get it's through hard, especially yeah. someone, doable, but yes, it's hard of course right. yeah, it I has mean, a limited really, time and yeah. you know but I mean again it's not it's not like a total black or white scenario yeah. but I do think like that thing is really really important and so you should you pay extra that's attention cool. to it I mean, your experience yeah. as an agent, in some ways, ideally, should mimic the experience of a reader who picks yeah. up a book at a bookstore. And, like, now, like, I read in a reader, and before I buy a book for fun, I, well, I get the sample for free. Yeah. And that's how I decide. And yeah. that's how you, also, kind of how you decide as an agent. Right. Um, yeah, so, really, I would say, you know, really think about your first 20 pages. I pretty, and yep. particularly your first paragraph. Yeah, and, and to that, I also, like, I, I read books that are not my... Cl- I read regular books all the time on purpose because I want to... I want to find a query that makes me stop reading that book. Like, I have them with me in the subway always because if I'm bored, I will pick up my book, my regular book, you know, and read it right, right. and enjoy it. And if there's something that keeps me from it, that's something that is a real sign to me. That's a sign. Absolutely. Yeah. I know no. exactly what you mean, yeah. Yeah. I think that story is undervalued. This is... In literary fiction, at least. Yeah. I think this is yes. something I think about a lot of times. It's like... And also, the writing obviously is key. Um, but I do think that you know, tell a really good story. It's hard to do. Um, 
I think it's undervalued. And in, I actually in think it can be too. more simple than yeah. you think it's going to be, mm-hmm. or it can be more classic than you think it's going to be. It's like your voice and your telling of it that's going to make it more interesting. Um, I think people are either trying to like whiz bang their way through a novel, or <laughs> it's just so quiet sometimes that you're like, even if the writing is pristinely beautiful, you know, um, it doesn't like have that thing that pulls you through it. The number so. one bad habit I see with nonfiction, and this is like the story thing, this is like the, the habit I have to break my writers from, especially because so many of them are journalists, is they all want to do a series of profiles. Oh, Every yeah, yeah. submission <laughs> comes yeah. in as like, and I'm going to do a series of profiles that explains X problem. And like, what I want to say, and we all know this, is you're not going to finish a book unless there's a narrative thread that brings mm-hmm. you through to the end, right. even if it's nonfiction. Right. Even if it's nonfiction, it has to have a and story. And the greatest nonfiction writers are so voiced, like Mary Roach and John Absolutely. Robinson, people who can do that are right. so voice or Right, exactly. And that's like, what I love when I hand someone a book. They can plumbing. Right, and I'm like, it's not the subject, but like, look how they... Look at the architecture of this book and how they made you care from beginning to end. And it's not going to be a series of profiles. I think with these big literary nonfiction books, too, they're so complicated. Like, you need, for me, at least, maybe I'm less sophisticated, I need to see how the sort of sausage was made. Like, like Gay Talisa's Thy Neighbor's Wife. It is a masterpiece. You can almost, like, see the seams of that book and, like, how he put it together. Like, it took him ten years at least to write. But Mm -hmm. it's a great book to read to do sort of literary narrative nonfiction where it's it is sort of a series of profiles but only in the sort of most vague sense of things like you can you can see how he stitched it all right, together exactly. it's very like useful I think to have that experience so Melissa how did you get here you mean today like to the office well yeah uh, I took the East River Ferry, which uh-huh. um, is a boat that travels across the <laughs> it's East not a River. Ferry. It's not the. It's not a ferry that that sort of haunts the East River. No, no. I guess ferries don't really haunt they things, do they? Don't. No. They don't. No. I, no. It's more of a boat. It's more of a vessel. Yeah. It glides across the surface of the water. I took the Staten Island Ferry. We are, which is uh, a ferry of a, in a of a different stripe. We both but, travel across water yes, is the point do. to get to work. But I gather that you're uh, asking a I more am, existential uh, question. I am. I am. How how did we get here on a on a deeper level? Right. What decisions did we make to to land here in New York City at a full time job? I have a family. You have a band. We're both born and raised in Wisconsin. Little tidbit. That's right. And we both take boats to get to work. We both take boats to get to work. <laughs> Something happened there along the line that, that caused it was yes. a very causal chain of events. Yes. So we do have that in common, but we both made different decisions mm-hmm. uh, to get to where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, you know we make different decisions about our writing as well. And um, Jesse Browner is somebody who is thinking about uh, those kinds of decisions, and he... Uh, has a new book out. It's called How Did I Get Here? Making Peace with the Road Not Taken. Uh, it's published by Harper Wave. And um, he actually wrote a piece uh, for the magazine back in 2012 called Lives of the Civil Servants. The Choices We Make. The Choices We Make, right. And um, he was actually introduced to us um, by Alice Quinn, the former poetry editor of The New Yorker and the executive director of the Poetry Society of America. And um, she, you know, sent us uh, Jesse's novel, Everything Happens Today, which was published by Europa Editions in 2011. And uh, we got this amazing essay by Jesse, and uh, we published it. And, you know, it happily turned into a book. 
So we had Jesse into the ampersand studio, as it were, <laughs> and uh, we talked about this and his new book and Elliot Smith and the choices we make as writers and artists and people and boats and boats. <laughs> Jesse Browner, thank you very much for uh, joining us. Oh, my pleasure to be here. So uh, you have the new book, How Did I Get Here? Uh, Making Peace with the Road Not Taken. I'd like to hear a little bit about sort of the genesis of the book. Um, you know, how how did you get here? <laughs> well, Kevin, I, I think it was maybe four years ago, my father-in-law sent me a link to an article in a magazine about the British writer Jeff Dyer. And it was all about how Jeff Dyer had decided that he was going to, his life and his work would be the same thing. He would never do anything he didn't want to do. He would enjoy every moment of his life. He would not be beholden to anybody. And at the time that I read that, um, it's, it, it hit me very hard. I, I'm a novelist. I've been writing and publishing now for 25 years, but all along I've had a full-time job. Um, that's that's somewhat demanding um, because I was never able really to uh, afford to raise my family on on what a literary novelist earns. Mm-hmm. Not many of us are. <laughs> right. um, and it made me really reevaluate my life because I felt as if Jeff Dyer was living the life that I had wanted to live. I remember, you know, 25 years ago as a young writer. I'm born in New York, and I was raised here, and um, I was living just the, the, the life that every writer wants to live. I, uh, I wasn't making any money, but I was supporting myself. I had lots of time to write. Um, I was living in the greatest city on earth. And then somehow, the way it often happens, a decision leads you slightly down a different path and that Mm -hmm. path keeps going and you're not necessarily thinking about it you're not necessarily trying to protect your vision um and i found myself with a full-time job uh, children uh responsibilities and i wasn't really able to figure out how to get back to where i wanted to be but at the same time i wasn't certain that i wanted Mm -hmm. to get back right and i wanted to write about um the decisions and the dilemmas and the possibly the confusions that many of us experience when we reach a certain age mm-hmm. and realize that our lives are not at all the way we had imagined they were going to be when we were young and, and passionate and idealistic. Mm-hmm. So I decided that what I would do is I would write about different lives. And so in addition to writing about uh, Franz Kafka who also, like like me, or I like him, <laughs> spent his whole life as a bureaucrat, um, or Elliot Smith, mm-hmm. uh, the, the indie rocker who committed suicide. Um, I wrote about other people as well. I wrote about my sister and um, her struggle to reinvent herself after her life was derailed uh, by um, a near-fatal bout of leukemia. I wrote about um, my wife's grandfather, who was a, an immigrant to Palestine in the 1920s and became involved in, in um, militant Zionism and was, was forced to leave Palestine. Um, I wrote about uh, a man named David Rattray, who was a poet and translator and a very early mentor of mine mm-hmm. when I was first starting out. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a fascinating book, and I, it gets at a lot of uh, really interesting questions that I think, um, you know, I know I'm very interested in, and I, and I mm -hmm. think our, our listeners uh, will be too. Um, you, because you 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 grew up in New York, right? Uh, you went to. Where, well, where did you I was I was born in New York. I moved yep. to Europe when I was a child, okay. and I came back to college. I went to Bard College. Bard, right? And I've lived in New York ever since. But after Bard, you you worked at an independent bookstore for a while. You read you read uh, scripts, I believe. That's right. Um, and you did sort of the and then while you were doing that, you were writing or attempting to write the the sort of great American novel, right? It's like this the the. The that idea the, that everyone has, right? The perfect writer's apprenticeship. Right. Um, you know, it lasted eight or nine years uh, until I took my first job. I cobbled together a living um, and never worked very hard. Uh, you know, that was the beauty of, of New York back in the 80s. You know, the flip side of it being dirty and dangerous was that it was cheap and vibrant <laughs> mm -hmm. and really exciting. Mm -hmm. And I lived right in the, in the heart of it. You know, on the Lower East Side, it's what everybody did in those days. I, I feel sorry. I have a, a daughter who's graduating from college next week. And that kind of life, and she's very interested in the arts. She's a wonderful writer, but she can't possibly hope to do what we were able to do. I never, for years, I don't think I ever worked more than 20 hours a week. And I was able to devote all the rest of it to my apprenticeship as a writer and as a translator because I did a lot of... I, pub I published several translations uh, before I, I published my first novel. But by that time, I was already working right. at the UN. Uh, and so it's a funny fact that despite all of the, the freedom that I had as a, as a young so-called bohemian, I didn't actually start publishing my books until I was already... Right. A uh, civil servant, right? Mm -hmm. And and you were married at that time as well. Were yeah, I was married in 1990. I'm about to uh, celebrate my 25th anniversary. Um, I got my job in 1991, and I published my first book in 1992. So uh, the funny thing is that I, you know, in my mind for many years, I thought of that year as as some sort of a a, a, a wrong turn. And yet, when I think about it, virtually everything good that ever happened to me happened at <laughs> exactly that time. Right. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, that's a lot what the, uh, the book is about, is, is not understanding yourself and your own desires. A lot of us, I think, and, and, and I don't think, I, I hope I'm not alone in this, um, take a long time to understand what it is that we're really looking for. Well, I, d I don't think you're alone in that. Mm -hmm. um, I think Definitely that... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that, but that kind of uh, even uh, presupposes that people are thinking actively about what they're looking for. You know, I mean, as I was reading your book, and and Melissa and I have talked about this a little bit. Um, you know, it occurred to me that I don't remember that I don't remember making some of the decisions that I've made in my life. You know, and and you write about that in in, in your book. Um, you know, I remember the decision to get married, and I remember the decision to have children, and I remember, you know, sort of those very important and momentous moments in my life. But I'm thinking about the decision to go to graduate school, uh, you know, back in the 90s, or the decision to, in my, in my case, move to New York. You know, I, I grew up in Wisconsin, went to graduate school in Iowa, and then 
somehow made this, this decision to move to New York to pursue a career in publishing. But I don't exactly remember making the decision. I just remember doing it. Most of us, one way or another, we end up looking in the mirror once a day. And so we never see ourselves getting any older. Right. Um, and in the same way, we make little decisions, um, but we make a lot of them. Mm. And bit by bit, they, they divert us from whatever path we were on. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is if, you're, if, you, if you have regrets. Um, I had to be very careful with this book not to dwell on regret. Mm. But you have, to, you have to, if you're going to live an examined life, you have to look at the the the, the unpleasant stuff as well, uh, you know. And I have to, f I had to ask myself, as I did in the essay and less so in the book. Had any of my decisions uh, damaged my prospects as a writer? And that's a question I just can't answer. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether whether my writing would have been better or worse. I'm, I'm really interested in that, too. You know, we talk about parallel lives um, in the book, and, and I think it's easy for a lot of writers and artists to focus on that possibility, that, that, that fantasy parallel life, and what could have been produced and what could have been made. And it's very easy to imagine that if you had all of this time to, to dedicate solely to yourself and your art, that you could just write unsullied for, you know... Mm -hmm. For hours and hours, from my own experience, when I'm given that kind of freedom, I am not productive at all. You know, once you get into it, it becomes this sort of um, unfettered chaos of speculation. Mm -hmm. You know, you have you have no idea. You can't so, know. not to mention the fact that the pressures of having to cobble together a living like that without health insurance, never knowing when your next paycheck is going to come. That's, that can be even more de debilitating than having a job you have to go to every morning. Right now I'm writing an essay about um, the history of bohemianism. And um, in the book I, meant, I touch briefly on this, this French novelist of the mid-19th century named Henri Murger who wrote a book that everybody's heard of, but very few people have read, which is um, Scenes of the Life of Bohemia. And it's Paris in the 1840s. Um, it's, this, is, this is the book that Puccini based La Boheme on, mm -hmm. and then Jonathan Larson based Rent on. It's the story of f uh, five Bohemians living on the left bank in Paris in the 1840s, which is incredible because, mm -hmm. you know, now we're, we're talking about almost 200 years ago. Right. And they, everything they do is completely and instantly recognizable to someone like me who lived that life in the 1980s. Um, you know, they're always struggling to put money together, you know, to find some sort of a deal. They're always trying to, to con somebody out of something. Mm -hmm. They're having, they have a lot of parties. Um, they brew their own, um, their own alcohol. We brewed our own absinthe in the mm -hmm. bathtub. Mm -hmm. Um, and their attitudes are exactly the same. They, they argue a lot. They, they, they have a lot of sex with people they don't know very well. Um, <laughs> and, I was totally smitten with this book when I read it, but the amazing thing about it, to me, was that at the end, they all say, you know what, it's time to stop. And mm -hmm. they say it really explicit. They, they said, we did what we needed to do, and what they needed to do was they needed to have a space 
outside of societal pressures, where they could develop their own voices in a way that they could be confident were not influenced or motivated by right. the need to get ahead. They, they were in a space that was completely safe from all commercial influences. But when they reached that point where they were ready to move on, they were actually not, they were extremely ambitious people. And they, at the end of the book, they all go off and they have successful mainstream careers in their chosen fields. Mm -hmm. But they've had their apprenticeship and they know, they, they say, if we stay, they say it really explicitly, if we stay on this path, we're going to regret it. We're going to feel like fools and we're never going to get what, what we want. For me, that was the lesson that I had not drawn from my experience. It was part of the reason that I was always drawn back, back to it was because I didn't understand that I had done it for, for a reason. Bohemia is not about endless a lack of responsibility. It's not about living a life of poverty uh, uh, and rejecting of society, although mm -hmm. it could be. Um, it certainly wasn't in my case because I embraced a society with every aspect of my life following that. Um, but for them, it was a time of their life that they were ready to leave behind when when the time was right. right. And I wish I had understood that earlier, that that's exactly what I was doing. And a lot of the book is about how I, for many years, decades perhaps, saw myself, continued to see myself through the eyes of that young man and felt as if I had failed that young man. Bohemia has to be at least something that you carry around inside of you. You know, it has to be an attitude about uh, creating boundaries where the world can't touch you, where you and your voice can safely speak to each other without fear of being overheard by, by the, the, the captains of industry. Would you like to read a bit from the book? Um, Surely. Okay, so this, this section goes back to, this is a section from the introduction, and it goes back to the early motivation for writing first the essay and then the book. Um, and I say, and I'm talking about Jeff Dyer, um, I say, even after all these years, I remain plagued by the fear that I may have made the wrong choice. Has it damaged or delayed my career? Would it have been wiser of me to set all else aside, perhaps even including the happiness and stability of my family, in pursuit of what I once believed to be a higher truth? Should I have quit my job because it might have made me a better writer or at least given me the opportunity I have never had to work exclusively and compulsively on something that, until relatively recently, I claimed to be the only thing I had ever wanted? I'm not yet ready to answer that question. I am, after all, in mid-career. If my next book or the one after that were successful enough to allow me to consider leaving the civil service, I suppose I'd be compelled to consider it seriously, but the fact is, I just don't know if I would have been a better writer or a more successful human being if I had signed up for the Jeff Dyer School, and I never will know. Well now, as it happens, I have to say this was that I do know now. Um, I learned an enormous amount about myself writing this book, perhaps too much. <laughs> um, but I do know now. I, I mean, I do know that it's, it's not that I know the answer to that question, but I know that it's the wrong question to ask. 
I'd been asking the wrong questions of myself all these years. It's a fascinating book, Thank uh, you. and it's a really intriguing subject. It's interesting, you know. Um, Melissa, you're in your 30s. I'm in my 40s. Jesse, you're in your 50s. 50s. So, and uh, it really, I think it touches on a very universal sort of uh, uh, way of thinking, uh, us as writers and artists. Um, and uh, thanks for writing it. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining me. else do we have going on um well we have uh page one um page one who do we have in page one uh, this issue melissa well uh we've got a host of exciting a host. new books a dozen. Uh-huh. Uh, a dozen a dozen does a dozen equal a host i don't think so i think a host can be um any number of really i think a host things. implies a much larger number i don't know a host of reasons a host of reasons to read a gaggle we have a gaggle we have a gaggle of books. A gaggle of good books, um, including uh, the forthcoming book from Jonathan Galassi. Mm-hmm. Muse is a novel. Yep. Uh, we have Nick Flynn's new collection of poems, My Feelings, which is coming out from Grey Wolf Press, and it is a great title. Uh, and, and many others, including Rowan Ricardo Phillips's new collection, Heaven. And we asked... Rowan to be part of our Page One podcast series this time, so he read a couple poems for us, and we are going to hear them now. The Mind, After Everything Has Happened Perpetual peace, perpetual light. From a distance, it all seems graffiti. Gold on gold, iridescent talked phosphors, but still graffiti. Someone's smear on space. A name. A neighborhood. X. X was here. X in the house. A two-handed engine of aerosols hissing, thou shalt not pass on fiery ground. A shot down aurora borealis that raised Dariola at the tip of the tongue of I. Or thou. Benedict Robinson, text me, if you know. If hell is a crater, to a crater, to a crater, to a crater. What then is heaven, aside from its opposite, which was glorious, known, and obvious? Bao de Nuria. The White Rose. The Celestial Silence. The Lake of Light. The bed-like inner thigh of Empyrean buttermilk and gold. Call it what you will. It wakes me tonight. Heaven re-heavens. And the mind's prelude to the touch of your lips on my forehead, on my neck. Our drowned echoes cellowing in the dark like flames drawn on the ocean is not the mind's prelude, but it's heaven. How somewhere not in Spain, there's a mountain borrowing your name. My soul is its snow. And so 
in the summer I am nothing. When all I want to do is lay my head down. Lay my head down on the naked slope of your chest and listen there for my heart. So we're going to Chicago. We are going to Chicago in a couple days, a couple actually. Days, we June, will be June 20th. For our next installment of Poets and Writers Live. That's right. And uh, for those who don't know what Poets and Writers Live is, it's a new program that we started, oh, a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we did is, you know, during one of our sort of planning sessions, uh, we went out and we talked to uh, readers of the magazine and editors and publishers and all kinds of our constituents um, and asked them, you know, what they what they needed. And one of the things they wanted is that they wanted an opportunity to come together in person and, um, you know, network and, and talk and and sort of get some of the, some of what they get from the magazine and our website in a sort of live format. Right. So we came up with Poets Runners Live. Right. And we, uh, we started out in LA and we've been here in New York, we went to DC, we went to San Francisco and it's, you know, a really cool day of panels and readings and Mm -hmm. performances and, you know, opportunities for writers to get to know each other that live in the same city who might, might not have you know, met before, um, find out about resources offered in those cities. Um, it's a pretty good time. Yeah. One of the things I'm excited about is the perfect pitch panel. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting um, a couple of agents from New York to come, Jeff Kleinman and Renee Zuckerbrot. And Michael Takens will also be there. And uh, we're going to, we're um, getting query letters and proposals from the audience. And we're going to choose some and we're going to critique them. Uh, which we did in San Francisco, and it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And also uh, Jeff and Renee and Don Cher, the editor of Poetry, are mm-hmm. going to be doing um, these sort of breakout sessions for a limited number of audience members. Um, Jeff is going to be presenting uh, an Agents 101 session. Um, Renee is going to be doing – she's going to present the agent's role in the publication of your book. And Don Cher is going to present Publishing for Poets. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be fun. The other thing I'm really excited about is uh, we have a whole session dedicated to the live literature scene in mm-hmm. Chicago. Live lit is a really big deal in Chicago. Um, uh, you know, uh, Slam started there at the Green Mill, and it's sort of um, live lit is this you know live storytelling community, and it's really taken off in the last couple of years, and it's really fun. People just getting on stage and telling stories, uh, many of which are unscripted. And it's sort of this literary reading meets performance, um, yeah. you know, events. And so we're going to have um, a couple people uh, coming. Who are they, Kevin? Uh, they are Lindsay Hunter, mm-hmm. Pernicia Jones, Megan Stielstra, and Inez Bellina. Yeah. So they're going to perform, and then they're going to be talking about sort of the intersection between writing for the page and performing on the stage. And it's called The Page on Stage. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so in San Francisco, uh, well, I should say in Chicago, we're going to have a poetry keynote by Lee Young Lee, who's just a fantastic poet. Um, 
And this is something that we did in San Francisco. Kay Ryan uh, gave the poetry keynote at the Brava Theater back in January. Um, and Kay Ryan, of course, is the former poet laureate. And she has a lot of fans in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So she, uh, she gave a spirited talk and reading um, to kick off that event. And um, we're going to listen to that right now. It's great to be here, and uh, I think Poets and Writers has uh, meant a lot to writers for generations. I mean, I was just saying that uh, I remember I remember reading Poets and Writers when I was trying to get started in the 70s, and, um, and I'm the kind of person who's a real non-joiner, like, I would never come to this. Uh, th- this kind of thing. The, I tried to come once uh, to something like this, and I-, I thought I could do it. I really did. I, I came. I wanted, to, I wanted to be with my people, my kind, you know. Uh, and I, uh, in about 15 minutes into the keynote, um, I had a, a migraine. I had a terrible migraine and had to go home. Uh, and that was the last time I did that. But I, I, was, I was saying backstage that even if a person, even if a writer doesn't come to things and even in a sense loathes the whole enterprise, uh, that writer still wants to know it exists, wants to know it's there, wants to know there's something out there, that there is a community to disdain. Uh, <laughs> Right, uh, so it's it's always been important to me, and and I'm I'm not disdainful. I'm going to start with a poem called Ledge, and this is going to be for Joyce Jenkins today. Ledge. Birds that love high trees and winds, and riding flailing branches hate ledges as gripless and narrow, so that a tail is not just no advantage, but ridiculous, mashed vertical against the wall. You will have seen the way a bird who falls on skimpy places lifts into the air again in seconds, a gift denied the rest of us when our portion isn't generous. Um... First of all, writing it gave me the opportunity to mess around with the metaphor of the bird and, and all the fun of the language. But I felt at that time caught on a ledge that I was, I think that would be the inspiration for the poem, actually. They're often very literal, that I felt that I was, that I was absolutely stuck on a ledge. And... Uh, so it was nice to think about the birds that aren't, that can leave. Um, so, of course, m- much literature is the result of complaints and <laughs> self-pity. Uh, I'm going to end... Oh, it's flown by, hasn't it? Uh, 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 I'm going to end with a poem called Osprey. Um, 
I live in Marin County, very inconvenient today. Uh, uh, we have a great number of ospreys. Well, we have a number of osprey. But when I, when I wrote this poem, I didn't know that we did. I thought they were all on television, uh, on nature programs. And I thought that they essentially nested in Scotland, as you will see from this poem. But, um, uh, but this is a poem that, that surprised me and that, and that, in fact, continues to surprise me. I used to use it as a test, a sobriety test, because it has a line that you just can't say drunk. Uh, all right. The great taloned osprey nests in Scotland. So you see I'm wrong already, but you really couldn't say Marin because you, it just wouldn't sound good. Yeah. Okay. The great taloned osprey nests in Scotland. Her nest's the biggest thing around. A spiked basket with hungry, ugly osprey offspring in it. That's it. (laughs) For months she sits on it. He fishes, riding four-pound salmon home like rockets. They get all the way there before they die. So muscular and brilliant, swimming through the sky. I had no idea that poem was going to go that direction. Uh, it's still, and it surprises me to this day, and I think it's surprising to hear. Uh, it seems like it's going to be funny or something or another. And then it's not. Uh, so I hope you're all inspired today. <laughs> Thank you. You got to love Kay Ryan. You got to love her. She killed it. She did. So in Chicago on June 20th, uh, we'll be hanging out with uh, Kevin Koval, Jennifer Day, Stuart Dibbick. Kelly Norman Ellis, uh, Victor David Giron of Curbside Splendor, Adrian Gunn of Tri-Quarterly, Jeff Fowler of Midwestern Gothic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angela Torres, and Marvin Tate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marvin Tate recently emailed me and said that he was going to create mayhem. <laughs> so, I mean... You don't want to miss this. You're not going to want to miss that. Uh, it's going to be a great event. And speaking of events, uh, just a little plug here. Uh, we have an events calendar on our website. Um, anyone can go online on our website and enter literary events that they may be participating in or hosting. Um, so if you've got a reading coming up um, or some sort of event that you're hosting, you just go onto our events calendar, enter that. It's very fast. And then the, all of those events... Uh, automatically populate our new app, Poets and Writers Local. Right, and Poets and Writers Local um, is available on iTunes and the Google Play Store. And it's something that we designed in-house with our uh, IT director, Jason Chapman. And it's pretty cool. It uh, The app will read your device's location uh, and show you all of the events uh, happening in your area. And, of course, if you're traveling, it will read, um, you know, wherever you are. Uh, You can also search um, other cities, but it'll show you the events happening in your area, uh, the reading venues in your area, different literary places, as well as our um, collection of city guides. Mm -hmm. Another uh, really cool thing that we have on our website is the Reading Tour Manager. And this is something where if you um, already have a tour planned or if you just want to sort of do some research and and sketch out a, a tour for yourself, you can create a tour add stops, um, and you can use our reading venues database for that. 
All of those stops will then populate a personal Google calendar um, that you have on your page. And once you have it all set, you can publish it. It'll appear on our site. You can also um, populate all of your tour stops on our national events calendar, which, of course, will then populate our app, Post mm-hmm. Runners Local. Uh, and it's a, it's a pretty fun tool. And Judy Bloom's tour is on it, so you, you can, can... That's right. You can, you can follow Judy Bloom on it. Yep. So if you, uh, you know, want to quit your job and become a Judy Bloom groupie and I'd, follow I'd, her across the country on her reading tour for her new novel, you can do that. Do you think they're called, they're, you'd be a Judy Bloomer? I think you'd be a Judy Bloomer. I think. But aren't... I think maybe we're all Judy Bloomers. I think at heart we're all Judy Bloomers. We were, we were born Judy Bloomers. <laughs> we are forever Judy Bloomers. <laughs> that's right. So check out all of those fun things. And uh, that's it. Well, that's it. Episode two, Ampersand. In the can. So tune in next time. To Ampersand. The Poets Writers Podcast. <laughs> Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited by Melissa Falovino with production assistance from Jonathan Walsh. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Night Owl, X Luna, and Chris Zabriskie. For information on Poets and Writers Live, our national events calendar, and our reading tour manager, visit pw.org forward slash connect. Download our app, Poets and Writers Local, on iTunes and the Google Play Store, and learn more at pw.org forward slash local. To subscribe to Ampersand and to check out photos, ephemera, and more, including the full interview with Jesse Browner and an extended reading from poet Rowan Ricardo Phillips, visit pw.org forward slash ampersand.